Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From GPB News, this is a special edition of Political Rewind. My guest today is three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author Rick Atkinson. His new book, The British Are Coming, tells the story of the early years of the Revolutionary War. Atkinson describes in vivid detail the harsh, bloody conflict that raged on for nearly a decade. And while the colonial army clashed fiercely with the British on the battlefield, pamphleteers like Thomas Paine fueled the flames of revolution with stirring rhetoric. He's inflamed Americans with his uh, vigorous, muscular prose and a, a, a pamphlet basically called Common Sense, in which he has told Americans, you know, throw off the shackles of the royal brute, George III. Um, uh, it's time, it's time. The, the, the cause of America is the cause of all mankind. My conversation with Rick Atkinson right after the news. Rick Atkinson, it's really terrific to have you here uh, to talk about your book, The British Are Coming. The first volume in uh, what's going to be a three-volume uh, uh, look at the American Revolution. So thank you for coming in for Political Rewind. Well, thank you, Bill. It's really good to be here. Do you mind if I read a quick thing from your book? No, I don't mind at all. So I, I, there's a passage that, that I think in many ways sets up the conversation about m maybe the greatest story about America ever told, yeah. the Revolutionary War, yeah. right? Yeah. And just here's what you say at one point early on. This would not be a war between regimes or dynasties fought for territory or the usual commercial advantages. Instead, what became known as the American Revolution was an improvised struggle between two peoples of a common heritage now sundered by divergent values and conflicting visions of a world to come. And then you say, and though it was fought in the age of reason, infused with enlightenment ideals, this war, this civil war, would spiral into savagery with sanguinarity, cruelty, casual killing, and atrocity. That is just a wonderful description of what we're going to read in, as we go through your book. Yeah, well, and thank you for reading it. Thank, thank you for, it's, it, it was my effort at the beginning of the book, really, to summarize where we're going. Yeah. And I think to alert the reader that um, this isn't a fairy tale. And uh, I'm a military historian and I'm accustomed to, to uh, writing about the brutality of war and I consider all seven of the books that I've written which are about war to be anti-war books. And this is in some ways an anti-war book even though I embrace the, the, the results of the revolution and the bravery of those who, who are fighting in it. Um, it's a nasty thing, and it's a nasty thing in part because it is a civil war, and it really does foreshadow the civil war of the 19th century. Um, so let's talk about George III and some of the mistakes early on yeah. uh, that, that uh, led to the conflict itself. Um, I think it's interesting that everybody, if they haven't seen the musical, they certainly know the music by yeah. now, yeah. and people think about George III in terms of that very funny song that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote for him where he comes off as a foppish character, yeah. uh, not terribly bright. That's not the George III who you tell us about. You tell no. us about a much shrewder individual. That's true, and, and I love Hamilton, and yeah. Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius. <laughs> Uh, let me say that, but George III is not the uh, mincing dandy that we see on the stage every night. He's king for 60 years, first of all, and that's important to remember. Uh, he becomes king at the age of 22 in 1760, and, um, you know, having spent uh, a month with his papers in, at Windsor Castle, I really have an understanding for how uh, complex he is and how, how broad his interests are. Um, he's someone who, uh, first of all, is interested in everything from horticulture to astronomy. He's really got a broad array of interests, and uh, his education is impressive, a lot of it's self-education. 
Um, he, he, unlike uh, many 18th century monarchs, he's a good family man. He mm. marries an obscure, drab German princess, Charlotte, mm. as in Charlottesville and Charlotte, North Carolina. He, he like, met her right before they got married. He, he? He, he, <laughs> it was a long courtship, six hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they married six hours after she arrived. She'd been learning to play God Save the King on the harpsichord <laughs> on the ship from Germany. And he, he decorated the, the, the bedroom with uh, the bedroom suite with 400 yards of blue damask and uh, very carefully placed bowls of goldfish. You know, nothing says I love you like a bowl of goldfish. <laughs> and it's a, it turns into a great love ma match, actually. And she produces children with lunar regularity, 15 eventually. And you can see in his correspondence, he's a caring father. He's a good husband. It's a sweet marriage. Uh, and he cares a lot about his children, and he cares about his children sort of in the same way that he cares about his people. And all through all this, he is, he is struggling to figure out the path to take for the newly created British Empire. You know, he becomes king in 1760. In 1763, the British Empire is created because of their victory in the Seven they, Years' War. They, they've won against the Spanish. They've won against the French. Yep. They have a new empire, yeah. and here the American colonists come along and, to some extent, begin to challenge them well, that's right. very quickly. Uh, that's right, and the you know success uh, foreshadows for the British Empire all the difficulties of keeping an empire. Yeah. So, as a consequence of the peace of 1763, they get Canada, they get uh, rich uh, sugar islands in the West Indies, they get India, uh, they get a billion fertile acres west of the Appalachian in in uh, what is now the United States. Uh, and trying to hang on to that, trying to pay for it, first of all, causes the British to take some measures, including imposing taxes here, to keep uh, 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 several regiments here for the first time in America. Uh, all of this leads to frictions. And uh, the Americans, at this point, are accustomed, and they've been accustomed for 150 years, to being left alone. Yeah. And now they're not being left alone. And that is a, that's a prescription for trouble. And, and you say he, he and his advisors yep. made basically three key mistakes. That's, right? that's true, and he, he does make, he and his ministers, I think, embrace, for most of the revolution, three strategic miscalculations. And the first one is that a majority of Americans, there are two and a half million people in America in yeah. 1775, 500,000 of them are black slaves, but he believes that a majority of white Americans are, uh, if not overtly loyal, at least secretly loyal, that there's a large hidden majority uh, waiting to uh, uh, rally to the crown and to help the, the British to suppress the insurrection. That's wrong. It's completely wrong. Uh, you know, modern scholarship has uh, calculated that probably 18 to 20 percent of the two, two million white Americans were loyal in some fashion. Now, loyalty is a very shifting concept because you may be loyal when the British Army's in your backyard, but you may be less loyal when they leave and your neighbors who are rebels come over and wag their finger at you and threaten you with jail. Yeah. So uh, if you've got, let's say, 20% of the population loyal in some degree, that is not enough to uh, really have a, uh, the kind of impact in suppressing the insurrection that George assumed it would. It was this miscalculation about how much Americans thirsted for freedom, for creating this new form of government that threads through the entire story of the revolution, and not just on the British side, the miscalculation, but it's what drives Americans forward to say, we do want our freedom. It, it may be the most important mistake in some ways that, that the British made. I think that's true. And, um, and you realize, you know, George, during his long life, never leaves England. He never even goes to Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and he obviously never visits America, and none of his ministers have been to America, and so they really don't have an understanding of these fractious people on the rim of the world who speak English but in many ways have become a different people from, uh, from those in Britain. So um, in, in his mistaken understanding of what's happening in the colonies, he and, uh, and the British ministers uh, do a number of things to further inflame the colonists, um, the Intolerable Acts, probably the most significant of which is closing Boston Harbor, uh, which is, we should never forget that the heart of the revolution was in Boston itself. Yes. Yeah. And closing Boston Harbor was an act of hostility that can't even be calculated. It's an act of war, really. Yeah. And it, it's in the wake of the Boston Tea Party 
there are a series of events leading up to it, and uh, George, uh, George and his ministers try to impose a, a very small tax on tea sales. Um, as everyone knows, that didn't meet with the approval of, <laughs> of patriots in Boston, and uh, some of them dressed as Indians. They go down to the harbor, they break into the hold of a ship that has a lot of tea. It's worth a lot of money, and they toss it into, the, into Boston Harbor. Uh, that in, that's in December of 1773. That just completely enrages not only the king, but everyone in the British government at the time. And they impose even harsher measures. Yeah. Closing Boston Harbor is meant to be punitive. It's meant to force the Americans to provide a compensation for this lost tea. They'll open it up again if you'll just pay for the tea. Well, at this point, uh, you know, sides have hardened and uh, hearts have hardened. Uh, so, you know, at this point, you got to think that uh, there's no real reconciliation available yeah. here. The first battle that you describe in such vivid detail uh, is Concord and Lexington which was, what, April 1775? April 19th. And, and again, if I can just go back to your book, here's what you point out. No one could foresee that the American War of Independence would last 3,059 days. And you point out that more than a quarter of a million Americans would serve in the cause, at least one in 10 of them would die during this war. And you describe more of the data out of that. Yeah. It, it was extraordinary. Yeah, it, um, you know, you have to say that uh, every American family had someone they loved in harm's way in one way or another. Everybody has skin in the game in this. And uh, 25,000 is the low end of the estimated yeah. deaths. Others have calculated it could be as high as 38,000. Regardless, 25,000 would mean this as a proportion of the population was the most costly war in American history other yeah. than the Civil War. So it's a, it's a nasty thing, and, and it should also be added that those deaths are apportioned between those killed in battle, those who die in disease, and a very large number who die in British prisons in absolutely horrible uh, criminal conditions. So the first fight is in Lexington, yep. and the British really overrun the American troops. It's there. an execution. It's not a battle. It's an you execution. You point out that a great many of the people, Americans, who were killed, the wounds are in their backs. That's so right. they were running away. Uh, they, were, they had turned, and they were actually obeying the British order to disperse. And a shot is fired. Nobody knows who fired the first shot. But the next thing you know, there are eight dead Americans, 10 are wounded, two lightly wounded uh, British soldiers. Um, it's, it's not even a skirmish. It really is an execution. But you, the, you say the Lexington bell began to clang in the wooden tower hard by the meeting house. Gallopers rode off to rouse half a hundred villages. Warning sh gunshots echoed from farm to farm. Bonfires flared, drums beat across the colony in an image that would endure for centuries. Solemn men grabbed their firelocks and stalked off in search of danger, leaving the plow in the furrow, the hoe in the garden, the hammer on the anvil, the bucket at the well sweep, the day would be famous before it dawned. That description is so wonderful because you really tell us these were, these were farmers, these were tradesmen who took the up arms because they believed in what they were doing. Yes, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the enthusiasm for the cause is never gonna be higher than it is on that day. And there's a long, hard road ahead, but on that day, first of all, they're enraged by what's happened at Lexington. The word spreads very quickly, and by the time the British march another five miles and get to Concord, there aren't just a handful of, uh, of militiamen on the green waiting to be executed. Uh, there are hundreds, mm -hmm. and they're angry, and they're armed, and they're well-led, and uh, that's where the fight really begins. As they're going back, to, as the British are coming back from Concord toward Boston, mm -hmm. and Really, it's the first time we see a, a, a kind of warfare that Americans are going to deploy throughout the war, whereas the British fight in that formal European style mm -hmm. of marching in rank, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the Americans along that route are hiding behind trees alongside the road. They're picking off yeah. uh, British soldiers, and it becomes a bloody, bloody scene. It's, a, you know, it's 18 miles back to Boston at this point. It's a very long day. Now, the British have had experience in the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. They have fought in North America, and they're, they're familiar with the tactics necessary. And they put out uh, skirmishers on the flanks, and they've, they've got, uh, they've got the, uh, 
the skill set to fight against this kind of uh, guerrilla warfare that you've just described. But uh, that march back is awful. They're, it, the, the, you know, they're uh, f frightened, they're bleeding, uh, their uh, leadership is confused. And it's probable that the initial column that had been sent out, the one that fought at Lexington and then was repulsed at Northbridge and Concord, about 900 men, they could have been obliterated. It could have been an utter massacre. The only thing that saved them was that a relief column was sent out yeah. and met them near Lexington as they're retreating, as they're very close to being surrounded by, as it turns out, 4,000 angry armed rebels. And that relief column essentially uh, protects them and shelters them back into Boston. It's still very bloody on the way back. There's still many, many casualties. I had mentioned how much I appreciated reading um, your drilling down from the epic to the very, very uh, personal. You talk about uh, an American named Jonas Parker. How you describe how he was placing bullets and spare flints in a hat at his feet as he was fighting. And then you say a British ball knocked him to his knees and as he fumbled to reload, British bayonets tore him dead. You point out that Jonathan Harrington, another American, was shot close to his house and reportedly died on his doorstep within view of his wife and son. Yeah. This is where you give us such a vivid picture of, of what it's like when you can look through the smoke and see the real fighting take place. Yeah, and in fact, if you go to Lexington, you can see Harrington's house, and you can, oh. it doesn't take much imagination to see him bleeding to death on his front stoop uh, while his wife and kid are looking out, and uh, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's, uh, each individual death is, is a world destroyed, yeah. and um, uh, it's important to remember that they die one by one. Their deaths are as singular as a snowflake or, or a fingerprint. You're listening to Political Rewind. Uh, we'll take a break, and when we come back, more with Rick Atkinson. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, my guest is Rick Atkinson. Your new book is The British Are Coming. It's the first of a three-volume uh, set that you're writing about the war for America. And this first volume takes us from 1775 to... Uh, 1777. Um, let's talk about luck and divine providence mm. and events that unfolded during the revolution. Mm. There are things that work to the Americans' advantages, and they talk about it. Washington talks about yeah. divine providence at times. You know, I think, first of all, Bill, it's important to acknowledge the trait that Napoleon most cherished in his generals, which was luck. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's much better to have it than to not have it. Yeah. And Washington has luck. He recognizes it. It starts, you know, when he's a, a young militia officer in the French and Indian War, and his commander, Braddock, is killed near current-day Pittsburgh. Washington has four bullets through his coat. And, and his two horses shot two, out from under uh, him? You know, and uh, there, there's an element of luck in surviving that. He's got a, a tincture of indestructibility that sets in early on, and it's with him all the way, really, until late in his life, until 1799 when he dies. Uh, you know, he sees the commander-in-chief for eight years, and he is so robust, it seems like he never catches a cold. <laughs> and he's in the thick of fighting, you know, bullets whizzing around him, and again. So is it divine? He's not conventionally religious. As right. with many of the founders, uh, they, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is their personal savior. Right. They don't believe that uh, God is down there um, moving arrows around on the map. Uh, but they, he refers to, to providence, yeah. and uh, it's a concept in which uh, you believe that there are forces moving, that the forces are favoring you uh, at a certain time. It doesn't necessarily rely on your good behavior or on, your, on, your, uh, on the purity of your motives, but uh, he does refer to, to, to providence. And, uh, you know, I think what you see on occasion is when it seems that things are really dark for the American cause, and something happens that just seems so improbable that it's not any surprise that people think that there's perhaps some divine intervention. Good example is, is, is getting across the East River in yeah. August of uh, 1776 after they've just had the tar kicked out of them in the Battle of Long Island. Washington makes uh, some serious tactical errors and his army is almost encircled and they retreat into the little village of Brooklyn and he makes the correct decision to evacuate across the East River to Manhattan Island. 
Uh, he organizes a kind of Dunkirk evacuation. And that night, the fog rolls in, and it, it obscures this evacuation and allows them to get away, not until morning do the British recognize that this is happening. So those kinds of things happen, and you think, hmm, well, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good to have somebody <laughs> up there on your side. <laughs> um, so let's talk about a little bit more about George Washington. I, I, was, I couldn't wait for him to make his entrance in your book. He, he appears in chapter four yeah. at the very beginning of that. And he's, um, right away, we're, we're wondering, here, here's somebody, you talked about the Battle of Monongahela. 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 Yeah. Yep. Which is where he had his clothing shot through and yep. lost two horses. Um, he hadn't been a soldier for like, what, 17 years That's passed correct. between yes. his work in the French-Indian War and when he became the commander of the American forces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, his his military experience consists of five years in uh, uniform with the Virginia militia. He's a colonel, ultimately, always under superior British command. And then he leaves the militia and he is out of uniform for about 17 years. He uh, spends that time, he marries the richest, richest widow in Virginia, Martha, Martha Dandridge Custis. Uh, he is improving Mount Vernon. He's a, you know, he's a plantation owner and he's making, uh, he's making his bones as a, as a gentleman farmer. And then the call comes and he is back in uniform. He's made commander in chief, partly because they want a Virginian to uh, command the uh, largely New England army to make it a continental army, to make it an American army. But that could create some initial resistance and problems. This has been a New England war yeah. at, at the moment at which he's selected. And, and although what you're saying certainly makes sense, how much resistance was there among the people of New England that um, they had this Southerner come in and uh, take command? Yeah, Washington is very aware of it. He's also very disparaging of these New Englanders. It's, New England is a foreign country <laughs> if you're from Virginia. And uh, he talks about dirty New Englanders, and he has nothing good to say about the junior officers from New England who are serving under him. Um, he's pretty nasty. And, and part of what's happening here, Bill, is that He's got, first of all, he, there's a lot he doesn't know about soldiering. He doesn't know about artillery. He doesn't know about cavalry. He doesn't know, he hardly knows about the logistics required for a continental army. So his learning curve is enormous. He doesn't have any staff. He's his own staff. He's his own intelligence chief. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he comes in and he realizes that this is an experiment in a national unity, putting a Virginian in charge of a mostly New England army. And yet he can't help being slightly repulsed by these people. Uh, and uh, he doesn't get initially the fact that he has left behind 200 slaves to take care of business for him at Mount Vernon and overseers. And he doesn't recognize that these small farmers have left their farms, their shops, their families at great sacrifice to go off and serve the cause at his side. He just doesn't get that at first. Yeah. So there's a mystical bond between leader and led that is going to have to evolve over time. Right. And they're going to, the soldiers are going to have to recognize that uh, he, in fact, has their best interests at heart, that he is capable, that he will lead them appropriately, that he will be fair. And he's got to recognize what it is that they're sacrificing in order to serve under him. This is a process. He's certainly helped by, the, by his stature. Yeah. You point out that he's about six feet tall, but kind of appears taller because of his, he stands very erectly and strong. And that he also happens to be a wonderful horseman. Uh, best horseman of his age, yeah. according to Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. He's, a, he's a thing of beauty on a horse. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that he has that in common with Ulysses S. Grant. Yes, it's true. Uh, it's true. And it's, uh, it's important. It, you know, at that time, uh, your capabilities as a horseman are part of your stature as an athlete and as a leader. And, uh, and in Washington, you know, he towers over almost everybody. And he's, he's a patrician. He, he is. Looks he looks the part. He doesn't <laughs> smile much because he's been losing his teeth since the French and Indian War, and he's self-conscious about it. Uh, and he's also reserved, uh, but he's got high cheekbones, and he, yeah. you know, he's got a, a burn. He's got slight smallpox scars on his face. It's important that he's, as a young man, had smallpox, so he's immune 
which is very, very important. Smallpox kills American generals as well as those in the rank and file. So he comes onto the scene. He's got a beautiful blue uniform. Uh, you know, it's been custom tailored. He can afford it. And uh, there's no doubt when he comes into a room who's in command. And that's part and parcel of the, of the presence that he brings to the job. So Washington takes command of the troops. All of the fighting has been happening in, certainly in the Boston area, in New England. Uh, the British eventually decide to uh, leave Boston. They, they can't make a stand there. They recognize that. So if we can for a minute, let's leave New England. Um, and let's talk about what you would uh, suggest a little while ago, how important it was that this become a continental uh, war. So can we talk about Charleston for a few minutes? Sure. Charles Lee. Yeah. Your description of who is Charles Lee and how do you yeah. describe him in your oh, book? You, no novelist could invent him. He's, he's beyond <laughs> the power of, of imagination. Charles Lee had been a British Army officer. He'd risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He was somewhat disaffected. Uh, he'd had a lot of combat experience, including in North America in the French and Indian War. He'd been shot in the chest. He'd married an Indian woman and she'd born twins. He never saw them again after uh, uh, kind of ditching his Indian family. And um, he's disaffected and he's, he's a, a, a guy who's um, kind of perpetually restless. And so he decides to emigrate. He resigns his commission from the British Army emigrates. He's a radical at heart, um, and he arrives in America um, writing and speaking about the grandeur of America and how American militiamen and American soldiers can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best that the British Army can provide. Well, this falls on very welcome ears in America, and when it comes time to begin forming the Continental Army in 1775, they make him a general, and he's, he soon becomes second-in-command to Washington. He's an odd character. He, he, he looks odd, first of all. He's very spindly. He's, he's described as having no shoulders. He has a huge nose. And he's the kind of guy who accumulates nicknames, and the cruelest of them is Nazo, because he has this big nose. It, it, he's the character in the book who you describe as his nose is so big that, that a shadow falls on the half of his <laughs> yeah, face. Yeah, well, right. that's, that's, that's described by somebody who's actually seen right. him. I'm not being cruel to him, but right. many people were. Right. And uh, he's got an affection for dogs. It's uh, really weird. Even those of us who love canines, he's got a pack of dogs with him all the time. And he talks about how he much prefers the company of dogs to the company of humans. You, you, uh, the chapter in which he, uh, we meet him, you, a dog in a dancing school, which is the way he <laughs> described himself, right? He does. He does. He's confused about Charleston and how to defend Charleston, South Carolina. And he's described himself as a dog in dancing school. Uh, he's got a way with words. He's, really, he's, he's an engaging character. And so the British decide that they're going to uh, send a, a punitive expedition, a pretty substantial Royal Navy squadron to Charleston and uh, capture Charleston. I'm not sure what they're going to do with it, but uh, if nothing else, the South Carolinians will be taught a lesson. Lee arrives to take command. He has, uh, he has been in Boston and then he was in New York. And uh, by this time, the South Carolina militia really have things well in hand in preparing to receive what they believe is going to be a British attack. Sullivan's Island is a little barrier spit just yeah. outside of Charleston Harbor. Yeah, I think there are probably many of our listeners who know it uh, from vacation yeah. in Charleston Yeah, it's area. a beautiful place. Yeah. Uh, they built a little fort out of palmetto logs. Yeah. It turns out palmetto logs are the perfect thing to absorb cannonballs. <laughs> <laughs> and so the British attack... Uh, it's a long, bloody afternoon, and the Royal Navy is handed a singular defeat. They, have they make care. so many miscalculations, the, the Navy. Yeah, yeah. It's astonishing to read in your book. I mean, among other things, they can't get across the bar, yeah. the sandbar yeah. that blocks them from getting close enough to Charleston to fire on the fort or on the soldiers who are massed there. They have three ships running aground. They, they uh, believe... Talk about bad intelligence. They believe in an effort to outflank the American position at Sullivan's Island that there's an inlet, and some of your listeners will be familiar with this inlet that is uh, at the north end of Sullivan's Island, that at high tide is seven feet deep. You know what? They found at high tide it was 18 inches deep. So they couldn't get anywhere near they it. Couldn't get, they couldn't do the flanking maneuver yeah. that they'd planned. Yeah. And uh, their, their, their plan uh, goes to pieces quickly. They decide to attack anyway in late June of 1776. And they have tremendous casualties because yeah. the, 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 the guns that the Americans have managed to put on top of this Palmetto fort 
the, the fighting is very close range. The British ships come within four or 500 yards uh, and they get blistered. Uh, and at the end of the day, they, they end up pulling out, sailing away, taking their dead uh, and, and burying them in the deep. It's, it's a real loss for Britain. They, they leave the South alone for four years. Well, and, and that's why I appreciate it, the, the diversion in a way to talking about Charleston, because obviously most of this war is fought in the North. Was it a miscalculation for the British to decide to engage in South Carolina? Did that, uh, in fact, first of all, when, when, the, when, when, the, when Lee won that battle, it gave the Americans control of an enormous territory, I mean, essentially from what, Baltimore all the way to Florida. And the, as you point out, the British didn't come back for four years. That's so was it a miscalculation? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the British have, uh, have uh, scattered their force and they've scattered their navy so that uh, there's, a lot, there's fighting in Canada. By the way, we've invaded Canada yeah. in 1775 wanting to make them the 14th colony. Benedict Arnold. Right? Uh, Benedict Arnold was an important part of it, one of the great feats of soldiery yeah. through the Maine wilderness in late fall. So the British have uh, large forces in Canada of necessity. They've got this force in Boston that's forced out and they're sent to, they go to New York. And then the geniuses in, in London decide, well, we think that there are uh, big reservoirs of loyalists in the South, so let's send a fleet to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it fractures their, uh, their effort. It, you know, the unity of command and unity of effort is a cardinal principle of warfare and they never observe it in these first uh, couple years of the war. And it, in fact, allows the Americans uh, time and space to recoup uh, the, the fact that South Carolina, the Carolinas generally, and Virginia are, and Georgia are not threatened anymore, allows them to shift forces to the north yeah. to join Washington's right. army. Um, so yes, it, it's a serious mistake. Let's take another quick break. We'll uh, pause for just a moment and uh, be back with more with Rick Atkinson. Rick Atkinson, I want to keep talking uh, about your book, The British Are Coming. Um, you tell us on a several occasions that Washington realizes because he's having, he's having success, but he's also struggling to keep troops uh, they keep uh, their their tenure in service keeps coming up. They go home. Uh, he's got to go out and recruit more. Again, he's got to go after uh, colonial militias. He doesn't have an American army at this point. Um, so he needs something more to inspire his troops, a cause. And he realizes that he needs Philadelphia to say we are an independent, we are going to be an independent nation. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, a, a kind of unformed notion of what it is that we're doing here. Why are we doing this? Uh, why are we going through all this suffering and this bloodshed? And uh, Washington, by this time, has become fully convinced that independence is the proper route, and he's got a majority of uh, members of Congress who have come to think the same thing. There has been resistance to the idea because. There's a recognition that once you've gone down that path, there's probably no reconciliation possible. But the, uh, the, the essayist Thomas Paine, another British expatriate, has arrived in America and he's inflamed Americans with his uh, vigorous, muscular prose and a, a, a pamphlet basically called Common Sense, in which he has told Americans, you know, throw off the shackles of the royal brute, George III. Um, uh, it's time, it's time. The, the, the cause of America is the cause of all mankind. And he's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine today, but that is a rallying cry that people latch on to. Yeah. And Congress is, in, is impressed by the arguments he makes. And so there's a movement afoot and it's realized with the, the command to young Thomas Jefferson to go ahead and try and scribble down what, what you think yeah. we ought to be saying about yeah. this. He, Jefferson writes his draft in Philadelphia. Jefferson is a fine stylist, needless to say. Uh, the Congress, as a committee of editors, collectively, they get a hold of it and they tear it to pieces. They reduce it in length by about a third. 
change some of the wording, and I have to say, make it much better. It's shorter, it's more succinct, uh, it's sharper. Jefferson is, as any writer is, when an editor takes a sharp pencil to your prose, uh, but they've made it better. And, you know, it's read out, and it ultimately is read to the troops. Washington and New York organizes, uh, 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 musters his, his forces all around New York, and uh, men read the Declaration of Independence to him. It's not clear how much, a lot of it is grievances about Britain. And right. you, can, you can see in your mind's eye, men shifting from foot to foot in the ranks <laughs> as this drones on a bit. Uh, but it gives them a manifesto, and uh, it's, that's important at this point. Uh, first of all, go back to, to Thomas Paine for just a minute, because he fits into your narrative about uh, ordinary people rising to an occasion. No, no. You point out Thomas Paine was basically a not-a-work guy, couldn't couldn't hold on to a job. He but, failed at yet, everything ever tried, yeah, including right. marriage. You know? uh, right. Yeah. And, and yet and, suddenly he emerges and, as yeah. one of the great uh, rhetoricians of, of uh, the American cause. That's right. Here's how you uh, talk about uh, the reading. Erect and somber, Washington rode into the middle of a hollow square formed by New York and Connecticut regiments. The crowd hushed as he unfolded his script and began to read, In Congress, July 4th, 1776. Even the most unlettered private recognized that something majestic was in the air. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, every school kid now knows those first words. But You hope. You hope. You hope. But to imagine as restless as they might have gotten yeah. listening to all of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that uh, prologue, I mean, it, it still makes the hair on the back of your neck. Absolutely. Uh, it's important to say that we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, the, these truths... Uh, about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit did not apply to Native Americans. Right. They did not apply to 500,000 black slaves. They didn't apply to women. They didn't apply to indigents. So it's aspirational. And I think that's one of the reasons why it really resonates with these troops. They, they don't see this as a literal statement of the, of the affairs of America at that time. It is aspirational. Right. This is where we're going. This is our pole star. Uh, this is how we're going to navigate. And that's important. <laughs> you know, it's also important to, to, to realize, and it's, it seems a little odd, but okay, it's read out. There's a, three cheers, huzzah, huzzah. And then they kind of forget about right. it. There's no, uh, it's, it doesn't stick with them particularly. They got a lot on their plate uh, as an army. And so does Washington. And, you know, you don't see celebrations of the 4th of July until later in our national history. It's not really recognized as a document and as a date as something that is the, the genesis of something grand. That, that, ha that takes a while to build. So let's move forward a bit and, and say this. Uh, the British leave Boston. The American troops are, are obviously relieved they were able to uh, uh, take the city back. But then the British shift their attention to New York. Um, and there are battles at Staten Island and at Long Island. The uh, Americans are overwhelmed. The first thing I want to talk about with that, if we can, is what did you learn as you were researching these battles? And the question of whether George Washington really at that point was a sound strategist. There are many people who, in those days, who felt he made terrible mistakes, yeah. which led to the, the Americans having to evacuate New York. What, what did you yeah. conclude? Yeah, Bill, I think, you know, the British show up in force. They've sent not only the forces that had been in Boston, but they send re reinforcements mm -hmm. from Britain. They bring in German mercenaries. They'll eventually be 30,000 Hessians, as we called them, mm -hmm. uh, a, a very large additional portion of the Royal Navy, and they all descend on New York in the summer of 1776. And in August, they, they having staged on Staten Island, they cross to, to the western end of Long Island. Uh, what we see here with Washington is a general who doesn't really get it. He doesn't really see the lay of the land. He doesn't understand how his forces have been arrayed in defense of Brooklyn in particular, the little village of Brooklyn, uh, in a way that makes them vulnerable. And the British execute, first of all, a very deft amphibious landing on Long Island, and then uh, uh, an extremely deft outflanking of the American forces around the American left flank. In the night, the Americans 
wake up early in the morning, late August, and they find the British armies behind them. Yeah. That's never good. And so it's a rout, and they flee back into Brooklyn, as, as we discussed earlier, and they narrowly get away. They escape by a chin whisker, and this really reflects, first of all, Washington's shortcomings as a field general, but then he's also got the ability to stick with it, to kind of snatch a victory from defeat, and it is a victory in getting away. Uh, but the British are going to keep coming. The whole point of the book, the British are coming, is that they keep coming. They are coming. They're coming to destroy you. They're coming to rape your women. They're coming to burn your towns. It's, uh, it's dead serious. And they will land at Kipps Bay in uh, what's now Midtown Manhattan on the East uh, River. And uh, soon they have most of Manhattan Island. So the Americans are reeling. And uh, there's a battle fought at White Plains. Mm. Washington, again, doesn't see the lay of the land. He's lucky that it isn't worse than it is. The last foothold that the Americans have is at Fort Washington on, uh, above what's today Harlem. Uh, Washington thinks, okay, we've got a big fort there and we've got 3,000 soldiers and they can't possibly uh, attack without tremendous British losses. Well, four hours on November 16th, 19, uh, uh, 1776 is all that it takes for that garrison to be destroyed. Yeah. And those 3,000 men are, are, are captured or killed. And that's the end of New York. And from that point on, it's retreat, retreat, retreat. And, and this becomes important. Your, your book has wonderful maps uh, that isolate battles. But if, but if we imagine in our heads what, what's happening here, uh, the Americans are now forced into New Jersey, where they realize the next step is the British to overwhelm them there and march on Philadelphia on the government, which would be the most devastating blow yeah. of all. So New Jersey becomes a crucial stand yeah. in the American war. Yeah, it does. And uh, I mean, it's a stand in the sense that it mostly involves the Americans retreating across it initially. Right. Uh, and Washington, again, escapes by a chin whisker with his army. The army's down to 3,000 men at this point with the British on his heels. This is early December of 1776. He gets across the Delaware River westbound into Pennsylvania. The, uh, the Congress flees uh, because they don't want to get captured. They think the British are headed for Philadelphia. And Washington writes to his brother, I think the game is pretty near up. Yeah. Uh, he's really despondent, and he's not alone. Most of uh, those who are looking with a cold, hard eye at the situation on the ground see that, um, you know, th things are about as dire as they can be. So the Americans keep fleeing uh, further and further west, as you point out. Uh, here's again where Providence it plays a role. Uh, the British probably had the, I mean, you, you point out, the Americans are down to 3,000 men. Winter is setting in. Uh, they're, uh, they're living off the land, but they can only do that for so long. And the British stopped pursuing. What was that about? Yeah, well, uh, General Howe, who's yeah. the British commander, has uh, initially thought he's only going to take part of New Jersey. And his success leads him further downstate, and they get as far as Trenton, which is on the Delaware River, uh, you know, 30 miles or so upstream from Philadelphia. And um, Howe decides it's time to go to winter quarters. This is mid-December. Soldiers habitually don't fight in the winter in the 18th century. They need shelter. It's time to shut it down for, uh, until spring. And so Howe makes the decision that we're going to hold here. And rather than pursue them across the river, chasing Congress all over Pennsylvania, uh, and, um, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a stupid decision, it, but it's fairly cautious and it's fairly conservative. Uh, Washington is given the reprieve to consider, okay, now what am I going to do? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's desperate at this point. This is, though, another moment where some people would say Providence plays a role. The British had the Americans on the ropes. Uh, Howe decides to, to uh, go into his winter quarters. And this is where that extraordinary episode Washington crossing the Delaware. We all know the painting, um, Emmanuel Leutze. Leutze's mm -hmm. painting of Washington standing in the boat, which probably didn't really happen, I assume. <laughs> he, he, did, he did not stand, I can right. tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a brilliant, brave, uh, audacious thing 
to do. Can we talk about it? Yeah, for a few sure. Minutes? Well, yes, it's audacious. It's desperate, actually. Yeah, right. And he writes to Congress. He says, "Desperate times require desperate yeah. measures." Yeah. And so the desperate measure he concocts, he's got good intelligence, and he knows that one of the British outposts is a garrison in Trenton. There are about uh, a thousand, roughly a thousand uh, Hessian soldiers. They're Germans. And he sees that they're vulnerable, that uh, the nearest reinforcements to that garrison are some distance away. Uh, so he, he comes up with a plan. He has his force divided in three. They're going to cross the Delaware River on Christmas night, 1776. And they're going to envelop Trenton. They're going to fall on the garrison and they're going to teach him a lesson. All this part and parcel, not just for a tactical battlefield victory, but to try to reinvigorate the cause and to give hope where there is no hope. Let's, as we talk about this, point out what the conditions were like. It was snowing. Yeah. I think at one point you tell us the temperature gets down in the low 20s. The soldiers are freezing uh, in their boats, freezing as they cross the river. This is the conditions could not possibly be worse. Yeah, it's it's nasty. A lot of them don't have proper shoes. Uh, some have their feet ra wrapped in rags. Uh, it is nasty. It's sleeting that night, Christmas night. Um, the river is choked with ice. And in fact, two of the three uh, contingents that were supposed to cross simultaneously can't get across because of big chunks of ice in the river. The only f contingent that can get across is the one that Washington is personally commanding. It's the northernmost of them. Um, he's got about 2,500 men with him. They get across the river. It's a long, slow process trying to, you know, get horses onto rafts and get them through this ice-choked river in the dark. Uh, they get to the, uh, the, the New Jersey side, and they set out for Trenton. And they fall on this garrison, and there's surprise, and there's, you know, there's a, a bloody fight that goes on for about two hours. Uh, the Hessians are completely destroyed. A few get away. There are a dozen or so uh, British soldiers there. They're the first to run. Uh, but 900 men are captured. And they're ferried back across the Delaware River and sent to American prison camps. It's, it's a brilliant move by Washington, but what he does next is even more extraordinary. He decides to double down. Yeah. He, he decides he's going to cross the river again after returning to Pennsylvania. He crosses again. He goes back to Trenton, and he gulls the British who are in force in Princeton this time, 15, 16 miles away, to attack him in Trenton. He's well entrenched. There's a, there's a heavy loss imposed on the British, but Washington is pinned against the Delaware River. And in the night, this is early January 1777 by this point, in the night, he's, he's making this up as he goes along, incidentally. There's not a master plan at the beginning. He evacuates his force. They slip away around the British left wing and go to Princeton, where he knows there is a rear guard detachment, and he destroys it. And the British are shocked in the morning yeah, he's to not again. find the yeah. Americans where they expected yeah, yeah. to see him. Plus the fact that at this point, Washington's troops had probably not slept for two days, perhaps more. Yeah, yes. they're, they're tired and it's cold. And now it really is cold. Now it's down in the low 20s. That turns out to be good because it, it, the muddy roads harden and you're able to, to, to drag your wheeled vehicles, your cannon, uh, uh, to, to, to get to Princeton. And, uh, you know, the, you're right. The British wake up in the morning and they find that, uh, you know, where are those guys? He's kept <laughs> bonfires burning in the night and he's had a small detachment behind making a lot of noise and they're digging as if they're entrenching and so on. Well, in fact, they first realize what's happened when they hear gunfire from the direction of Princeton. And there's a skirmish there that's pretty intense. Uh, and uh, the rear guard is destroyed. The men are killed or captured. Uh, by the time the British can pivot around and go back toward Princeton from Trenton, Washington has slipped away and they head into North Jersey where the terrain is, 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 is good defensively. And he's going to spend the winter there. Yeah. So he has won these three battles, Trenton, Trenton II, and Princeton, Princeton in the space of about a week. What's I think interesting is this is the perfect place for you to end volume one, essentially. Did you decide that volume one would end there because of the time frame, or did you think that those battles were the appropriate place to stop? Uh, you know, I thought that this was a, a good breaking point. For one thing, it, it, 
it lifts the spirits of, I think, the reader as well as, <laughs> as the Continental Army because it, it's been so grim and glum uh, up to the point of the, 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 the fighting at the end of 76 and early 77. And then really uh, not a lot happens for the next five months because they are in winter corners. There's skirmishing and there's, there's, uh, there, there are little battles and uh, little meeting engagements. But for the most part, we're going to wait until spring comes. And that's a good place to begin again with volume two. So this is a, a natural breaking point, both in the actual chronology of the war, uh, but also in my narrative. Tell us very briefly, um, if you don't mind, where are you on volume two? Are you well into the writing of it? Are you still researching? Where do you stand on that? Um, I'm not well into any of it. <laughs> I, uh, well, you better get you out of here. Then. <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know, I've begun research, begun reading the secondary material to read. Uh, you know, we're talking about Saratoga and Germantown, and there's a lot that happens. So finally then, is there anything about what you've done with the American Revolution that gives you a different kind of sense about what it means to be an American. Yeah. Well, why bother writing the books if you don't come away with something that's relevant somehow that seems to inform who we are? I mean, the first thing to say about it, Bill, is that this nation was born bickering. <laughs> uh, we, we, a disputation is in the national genome. It should not be a great surprise that we seem to have difficulty finding common ground that we're, we're bickering again. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is that, uh, you know, we have seen leaders rise to the occasion in our national history um, who've got the traits that we really cherish. And Washington is a case in point where um, he's, you know, he's a man who puts a cause beyond his own personal interests. And he embodies traits of, of uh, vir he has virtues that uh, even today, we can really respond to. And we should demand that. We should demand that as a people. Um, also, I think we can come away thinking, no matter how difficult our difficulties today seem to be, we have been through much worse in the past. We've been through existential crises that have really tested us. Yeah. And we have somehow found our way. We've, uh, we've found our, our way around those problems, and we've triumphed over them. And I think, you know, that's one reason to, to read history, to know our history, yeah. is to take a solace from that and, and to draw strength from it. And uh, so those are some of the things I find uh, in, in reading about and writing about the American Revolution. Well, Rick Atkinson, um, the book is The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, 1775-1777. And it's the first volume of your Revolution trilogy. And I look forward how many, however many years it takes to get to volume two. Thank you so much for being here. I'm grateful to be here. Life. Thanks for the conversation, Bill. Just a quick parting note. The Political Rewind team and I are taking the rest of this week off to enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope it's a great holiday for you, too. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you back here again next Monday for another live edition of Political Rewind. Thank you.